Let me uh, also get a little, uh, couple of other items of business out of the way. I want to give some attributions to my sermon, since it's not outlined in your outline. Uh, I've, I've taken from Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Carl Truman in his book on Luther, uh, from Table Talk, uh, the Ligonier Ministries publication from Matt Smethers and Deepak Reju. Uh, I also have a quote from uh, Matthew Schmitz, uh, First Things, and even from David McCullough's book on the Wright Brothers. So, um, this, uh, you know, it's hot this morning, and it reminds me of uh, uh, my hometown, Chilhowie, Virginia. I love to tell stories about Chilhowie in my sermons. Small town back in the where I grew up is a town that time forgot and that uh, uh, what have you. And uh, on hot summer mornings, it didn't usually get very hot down there in the mountains. But uh, on Sunday mornings, uh, we got a little bit of a break if you're singing in the choir because the choir loft was kind of off to the side and there was a door over there and you could open that and the breeze would come in and that was all fine well and good except that wasn't the only thing that came in and one morning as we stood to sing the final amens I felt something crawling up my leg and I took my other leg and kind of scratched it and that's when the wasp let me have it and I hit the wrong note on the amen. <laughs> our, uh, our scripture this morning is from the Ten Commandments. Uh, the, uh, uh, as you know, the, we've been uh, going through, uh, we went through Exodus a couple of years ago, and we uh, have now started, gone back now, and started a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, last, uh, we hit the first, the preface, the first couple of weeks, and then we jumped ahead to the fifth commandment last week because it was Father's Day, and so now we go back to the first commandment. So if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm only going to, it's only three verses. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Father God, we pray that for the exposition of your word, that it may be faithful to it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name. You may be seated. All right, so this may come as a surprise to my family, but I've been thinking about something um, as I've, uh, that I wonder if I ought to do. Um, as any of you who know me at all will know that I, I am a sports fan. I, uh, when it's not baseball season, I love college sports, and uh, basketball or football, either one, and uh, ACC is my conference, and of course, the, a lot of basketball championships come from the ACC, and no more than Duke uh, University, which has won five in the last 25 years, 
They haven't won one for about three years now, and I'm wondering if they don't need some help. And I think I can do it. I'm beginning to wonder if I might ought to enroll myself as a grad student down there because they have a walk-on program. And I know all colleges have a walk-on program that you can go. But in this one, Coach Mike Krzyzewski, Coach K for short, supervises the walk-on tryouts at Duke. And you can kind of get some pointers down there. And Duke doesn't have that many walk-ons, but I figure I could do this. I mean, we've got, if you walk down the hall in our, in our school building here on your way to Sunday school, and I encourage you to go to Sunday school, but at the end of the hall, there's this big sign down there that says, believe in me. Have you seen that? Anybody noticed that? Believe in me. I believe in me. I could go play basketball for Duke. Why are you laughing? <laughs> if that's all it takes is I can believe in me. Well, I, I mean, for those of you who are listening on the internet, they're laughing because, well, first of all, I'm 57 years old. And I'm also four foot or five foot five. <laughs> and I weigh about 195 pounds and I have a bad knee. But other than that, I believe in me. And I might, maybe I ought to wait 10 years. I need to retire first and do it again and, and try this again in 10 years. But that's the idea. Believe in me. Hold on to that thought. We need to talk about the scripture. Our verse today, you shall have no other gods before me, is obviously a, a short verse. There's not a whole lot of controversy over its meaning, but that doesn't mean that it's not controversial or easily followed or even liked or appreciated. I guess one aspect of it, the phrase before me, bears a little bit of explanation. That's not merely uh, a, a rank, a first in rank or preeminence, but that is God will not have any other God in front of him or otherwise in his presence. And as the catechism questions alluded to, since God is omnipresent, he will not tolerate other gods. And we have a huge temptation to other gods. Calvin said that if God not alone have not alone preeminence, his majesty is far obscured. God would not have companions obtruded upon him and placed, as it were, in his sight or in his presence. You might remember the biblical incident in 1 Samuel 5 where the Philistines had captured the Ark of God in battle. And they brought the Ark of God, the symbol of God's presence, in a place where God's presence actually dwelt in some way. They brought that Ark into the, the temple of their God, Dagon. And they left it there overnight. And when they got up the next morning, Dagon was face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So they prop it back up 
put it back on its pedestal. And the next morning after that, they come back in, and not only is Dagon prostrate on the floor, but he's broken all to pieces. So to put it another way, God does not coexist with other gods. The popular bumper sticker is the antithesis of the first commandment. The people of Israel came from Egypt, a land of many gods, among whom Pharaoh was preeminent. In that culture, Pharaoh was the first among equals. He was fine with having other gods, but just don't try to pull rank on him. Otherwise, he could coexist. The scripture does not really tell us whether the Jews came to worship the Egyptian gods. They really did not know all that much about the God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had no name as far as they were concerned. There was no priesthood and there were no established patterns of worship that the scripture tells us about. But they did maintain their cultural identity. They were segregated and, of course, eventually made into slaves. In either event, they lived 400 years in a multi-theistic pagan culture. And then along comes Moses. Moses proclaims that he has met with the God of Jacob, that he's learned that his name is Yahweh, and that Yahweh is calling the Jews out of Egypt. And that, of course, brought him into direct conflict with Pharaoh, whose deity was threatened. And you know that there was the series of plagues that ratchets up the consequences. God does not back down, even as Pharaoh's heart and resistance stiffen. Moses is dealing on Pharaoh's turf. Egypt's economic stability is threatened by the loss of slave labor. But in due course, as we read in our Exodus series a couple of years ago, God makes his supremacy known through the plagues, culminating in the Passover and subsequently parting the Red Sea, where Pharaoh and his army are destroyed. And this is largely a demonstration to be instructive to Israel, that they are his chosen people. And in Exodus, they come to the mountain to worship, where God will reveal himself to his people. And everything is going to be great going forward, right? That, though, is not as easy. It's not going to be nearly as easy as they might think. They are learning about Yahweh, but they are being brought out of Egypt and its gods And they are headed through, and more importantly, to a land where there are even more gods. And it will take faith to believe that Yahweh is the only one. And they are going to be tempted by what what we refer to as syncretism. The blending of gods. In fact... Moses can't get down from that mountain fast enough before they're worshiping a golden calf. Now here we are in the 21st century and we're tempted to look back at that golden calf stuff and think how silly. 
We could never fall for that, right? But the temptation was far more subtle then, and it is now too. Aaron identified the calf as the God who brought them out of Egypt. That suddenly became far more believable. This now blends Yahweh with something that is tangible. And what is tangible takes on God's qualities and vice versa. This will always be the first and most dangerous temptation. It is the temptation to blend God. And as such, it would violate the first commandment. This is why there was a ban on intermarriage. It was to discourage syncretism. Solomon could be the great builder of God's temple. But then he could turn around and build more temples for his foreign wives who worshipped foreign gods. Syncretism is alive and well for God's people today. Syncretism lets us tend to believe about God what we want him to be, not what he is. We tend to remake God in our image, forgetting that we are made in his. And we tend not to believe about what God has revealed about himself. Let's take a look at the second commandment, for example, the very next few verses, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven in heaven or anything, uh, excuse me, nor shall you bow down or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." We can believe, perhaps, that God is a jealous God of vengeance without the covenantal love of God. And perhaps that's a temptation for prior generations more than ours. Our generation has an easy time of believing the covenantal love of God without the God of justice in verse 5. But God is the God of both without contradiction. And that's who we're called upon to believe. When we emphasize one to the exclusion of the other, we break the first commandment. We've created a new God. But wait, there's more. We think we don't have, sometimes we think we don't have enough information about God. And so we're tempted to fill in the gaps. This is what the people of Israel did. They built the golden calf. There's icons and images that help us understand. Or so we think. Sometimes this is because we really haven't taken the time to learn what God has revealed about himself. Other times it is because we're discontent with what he's revealed about himself. And, of course, the biggest issue is when God addresses us about our sin. That's when we intend, intend to invent a God who accommodates our sin. And like Aaron, 
we put God's name on it. You don't like masculine pronouns for God? Okay, let's get a translation that puts the she's in it. Think God wants me to just be happy? Okay, name it and claim it, brother. We want a God to accommodate our extramarital sex or our gay sex? Well, we've got that for you. After all, Jesus didn't say anything about gay sex being a sin, right? That's what Jimmy Carter says, our former president. Must be okay. But don't ask Jimmy about Moses or Paul. We want God to judge my enemies? Well, Jonah, the prophet, can tell you how frustrating it is when God is extending his mercy. Our, our hearts are idol factories, according to Calvin. And we like to put God's name on our idols. We syncretize so we can have our Christian this and our Christian that. And hence we end up with all those misunderstood Bible passages that we heard about in the previous sermon series. And those are just the most misunderstood passages. There's plenty more where those came from. And even when we do understand them, we're constantly tempted with an aspect of that first temptation. Did God really say? See, we begin to touch on what Tim Keller calls deep gods. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, we go back to a sermon that Dr. Dave preached a couple of weeks ago about the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, the man who asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. This, I won't go back and reread that particular passage because we did already covered it, but the man obviously sensed an insecurity about his eternal destiny, and yet he failed to see himself or God's law correctly. You see, as we go through the Ten Commandments, as we go through God's law, it can be for us a mirror in which we see ourselves revealed as who we really are. But not this guy. He looks in and he thinks that he has kept the law from his youth. And Jesus walked him through the second half of the Ten Commandments. And he says, fine, I've kept them all since I was a young boy. And so Jesus turns and tests him on the first commandment. Give up your wealth. Give up your power. Have no other gods before me. Sell all that you have and come follow me. And thus Jesus reveals this man's idol of money and power. I mean, that covers two of the big three right there, right? Money, sex, and power. He's got two of them, and he has no idea. He walks away sad. The second example is from Luke chapter 12. And here we have a, a little vignette of a story that is near and dear to my professional life. Here we have a man. Uh, I'll, I'll read this passage. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And then he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. As a lawyer, I'm a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, and most of my work deals with estates, estate planning, and administering trusts and estates post-death. This man who approaches Jesus is a beneficiary of his father's estate. His brother is the executor. And this guy approaches Jesus, and he wants Jesus not merely to arbitrate, but to come down on his side in the dispute. You hear what Jesus is saying here? Jesus doesn't even address the merits of the man's claim. For all we know, the man may have been right. The executor may have been breaching his duty. But Jesus is not the right court in which to settle such claims. Jesus, though, is the judge to reveal this man's deep God, his covetousness of the material things of life. This man was disappointed in his brother and not receiving from his father. This man was experiencing disappointment and disappointment often reveals what our heart is worshiping. That's worth repeating. Our disappointments often reveal what our heart is really worshiping. And that really brings us to the most insidious God of all, me. I could, of course, go on to a rant about the selfie generation and stop the sermon here. Maybe you're hoping I would, but I won't. <laughs> it's, the, it's the original temptation in the Garden of Eden. Remember what Satan tempted Eve with? You shall be like God. It's not a hard step from making God in our own image to making me God. I mean, after all, the sign at the end of the hallway says, believe in me. Now, what is this trying to tell kids? Why is that sign there? Well, I think if you ask the people in the school, they're going to say that we're trying to have kids develop a positive self-image. Right? That's, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's what they're trying to do. In the evangelical Christian world, this was first modeled by a man named Norman Vincent Peale. And have any of you heard of Norman Vincent Peale? Not many of you. In the 50s and 60s, he was enormously popular. And his mantra was the power of positive thinking. Norm Vincent Peale was probably as popular in his day as Joel Osteen is today. Everybody heard of him. He's second only perhaps to Billy Graham. And he had a profound impact upon a young man who was baptized in his church, Presbyterian Church in New York City, Donald J. Trump. 
You see, if you believe in yourself and just think positively, then you, don't, then you can believe about God whatever it is you want. We can't think negatively about the commandments, especially if you've broken any of them. Because, and, and, and so we invent our own set of commandments. The Pharisees did this. And Jesus called them on it. There was a, a point in, in Matthew 15 where the Pharisees had this custom of giving their money that they were supposed to use to support their parents in their old age. Instead, they would give it to the synagogue and say, I don't have to honor my parents anymore. I have given this money to the church, given it to the synagogue. And Jesus called them out on it. Look, you made up your own rules here. Those aren't God's rules. That's not God's law. In fact, you're breaking God's law by not honoring your parents, by making up your own rules and following them. And that's what we tend to do. If we make up our own rules, then we get to do what is right in our own eyes. Where have I heard that before? Oh, yes, Judges chapter 21, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes when they had no king and hence no law. Not only that, but if I believe in myself and you believe in yourself, guess what? We're probably going to have some conflict. You know, I remember the first time, and I remember seeing that, noticing that slogan on the wall. Believe in me. Wait a minute. Where have I heard this before? Believe in me. Oh, yes. That's Jesus. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, let, nor let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. See, we have our own versions of making up our law. In the South, we have this little saying, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with the girls that do. So I, can make, I can follow that law. But I can't follow God's law. So what am I supposed to do? Shouldn't I just believe in myself? Can I really be anything I want to be? I'm really, when it gets down to it, not in control. 95% of who I am is constituted by things that I didn't choose or control. Genetics and environment. When Wilbur Wright, co-inventor of the first airplane, was asked what a young man should do to succeed, he said, pick good parents and grow up in Ohio. <laughs> well, I would just argue with grow up in Chilhowie, okay? <laughs> I didn't choose my date of birth. Did you? I didn't have any control over when I was born. I'd be honest, I'd rather been born in 1860 than 1960. I didn't choose my parents. I didn't choose my chromosomes, although there's a lot of people trying awfully hard 
to alter what their chromosomes say about them. I did not choose where I grew up. My parents, my parents did that. I did not choose my talents. Now, I might develop what I have, but I'm never going to make the Duke basketball team. I mean, I might be short, but I am slow, too. The bottom line is, I am not in control. I've had to counsel a lot of dying people. And it is cruel to tell a dying person to believe in themselves. When we, in our godlike understanding, collide with the real world, we hit a feeling of despair, what Martin Luther called Anfaktungen. Did I say that right, Philip? Thank you. I had to get Philip to coach me on this. This is a German word, Anfaktungen. And I'm not trying to put on airs here, get above my raisin or anything, but there's just no equivalent English word to this. It's a feeling of dread and despair that takes a toll. It's not just a one-time feeling, but, but something where a person finds himself at a total loss and in total despair from time to time. Luther struggled with this throughout his whole life. It's the feeling that makes us run to safe spaces. Just like Adam and Eve, they ran to their safe space. They hid from God. They who would be their own gods could not bear God's presence. As if they anticipated the first commandment. This feeling of Anfangtugen is what the, led the French philosopher Albert Camus to conclude that the only way out was suicide. It's just a matter of when. And I want to be careful here because suicide is pandemic in our culture or the threat of it and it touches many families. But it's my belief that telling our people to believe in themselves and setting up expectations that are unrealistic about life is a big part of that. There has got to be a better way than believe in me. And there is. The Apostle Paul deals with this feeling of unfectugan in Romans chapter 7. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil is what I keep doing. So I find there to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hands. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is looking into the law. We're going to be covering the law in the next few weeks in this sermon. What are you going to do when you look into it? But alas... This feeling of dread and hopelessness is the very thing that drives us to the gospel. 
Jesus said, blessed be the poor in spirit. Those are the ones that will see God. For the world, grieving sin is regressive and restricting. But for the Christian, it is the pathway to joy. It is the godly guilt that leads to repentance. And so Paul concludes, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The answer is the gospel, not ourselves. It leads us to the worship of our God and to serve him only and to have no other God before him. Indeed, that's our chief purpose, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think we better pray. Father God, we thank you for grace that meets us when we fail your law, when we are tempted to have other gods before us. Oh, Lord God, be merciful to us that we might not sin against you, that we might worship you and you only, that we might love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory in, with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen.